Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testify that we have contacted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I make up my mind that I will not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, by you whom I have grieved, I wrote as I did, so that when I came I will not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had, I had confidence in all of you, that you will all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you will stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, 
I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, since, uh, well, last time we spoke about uh, uh, preachers in expensive footwear. Um, and, and since then, some people who love me dearly uh, put together for a birthday present. Uh, and so, friends, I do stand before you a hypocrite. Uh, some would ask whether RM William Boots are. Uh, what's the difference between you and the people you, you laughed at in the $500 Crocs? Um, friends, I would say that is obvious because these are much better than $500 Crocs. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to something completely different. We're going to do the same passage this week, but um, I've changed my tune. I'm no longer wanting to cancel preachers and expensive footwear, but to forgive and to restore rather than cancel those who have been in error. There used to be a punishment um, in uh, various places in the world, and it was practiced in, um, uh, in England and America, called pillaring. You don't know what a pillory is? Reese does. Uh, a pillory is, is like a stocks. So a wooden thing, you put your hands and your head in. And basically the punishment was, it was a judicial punishment. If you've been found guilty of uh, an offence less, not worthy of death, but um, worthy of um, uh, censure by your community, you'd be put in the stocks in the public square and people would come and insult you. Everyone, everyone you know, the whole community, come and line up to insult you. Now, it's a simple punishment, but actually, some people preferred the sentence of death to the social death of having everyone you know know what you did and insult you for it. Uh, because of this, in many parts of the USA, uh, journalists and preachers denounced the practice of pillaring as inhuman. It's dehumanising. It's uh, not an appropriate punishment for enlightened, uh, humane, Christian people. And so um, in the later 19th century, actually, pillaring was outlawed in many parts of the world. Until 2013, when it was brought back. The public square is no longer the actual public square. It's a place called Twitter. And for some reason, in our great enlightenment, we decided that what our 19th century ancestors had decided was inhumane is actually good, not for judicial punishment, oh no, but for sport. In 2013, people started, around about then, started to take to the town square. A journalist at the time, John Ronson, uh, for the New York Times, began interviewing people, ordinary people, who had experienced the pillaring of the social media town square, who had become the target of mobs for their indiscretions. He interviewed a man who, at a conference of computer programmers, made a joke, a private joke, he thought, to a friend, not a very good joke, uh, about a computer dongle. You can join the dots about what the joke might have been. Anyway, he was overheard by someone a couple of tables away who stood up, took a photo of him, and shared it to her followers on Twitter. The next day, he was fired. I packed up all my stuff in a box, he said, and I went outside to call my wife. I'm not one to shed tears, but when I got into the car with my wife, I just, I've got three kids. Now, before we uh, share too much sympathy for him, and 
to be clear, I don't think sexist jokes are okay at all. Hear what happened to the woman who shared the photo. Another Twitter mob formed and targeted her, the woman who took the photo. Some, quote, men's rights activists, unquote, targeted her on Twitter. Someone posted her home address with a violent image to Twitter. Then hackers took her employer's website offline. She worked for an IT company. And they said to her employer, your website will stay offline until you fire her. They fired her the next day. Can we do better than this? I mean, what, what was gained in this whole absurd drama? And 10 years later, that was in 2013. Yes, 2013 was 10 years ago. I just had to do the maths. Have, have we got any better at dealing with real, and I do so, I mean, sexist jokes are a real thing that we need to deal with, but have we got any better at dealing with sin in our culture, in our community. Now, some academics actually defend this culture um, and, and say that we're really, we're, we're, uh, people who whinge about cancel culture, quote unquote, are really just whinging because we're taking away privileged positions uh, from people who should not have such a voice in, in society. And maybe there's merit to that. But most of the people interviewed in this article were not people in a position of particular influence or authority. They were just people who were ripe for pillaring. And their pain became entertainment for a self-righteous mob. I think there has to be a better way. So here is Paul, who shared the gospel with the community in, Cor in Corinth, deeply concerned about the direction that the church is taking. And he tries to exercise his pastoral authority to confront uh, this issue, but they're not going to listen to him because they have shinier, better preachers now uh, with more expensive footwear. Um, he's not impressed by worldly standards, you remember we talked about last week. And so the whole issue, though, comes to a head over a pastoral discipline issue, and that's the focus of what I want to talk about today in the same passage, this pastoral issue. Basically, someone in the church did something really bad. We're not told. Although this is the church of Corinth. So you could Imagine it's probably not going to be a small thing. This is, after all, the church that thought it was fine for someone to be sleeping with their um, stepmom back in 1 Corinthians. So anyway, Paul changes his travel plans because they're not listening to him. Right? They've got their shiny $500 croc preachers now uh, who don't care about this stuff, apparently. And so they're not listening. Paul decides he needs to do something. He needs to confront them in person uh, quickly. He needs to deal with the situation before it gets much worse. And so he plans um, to drop in quickly twice. This is a bit tricky. I had to read this 10 times. It's very tricky. Um, New Testament can be tricky. I take it all back. Um, it's very hard. Um, anyway, so he, he decides to drop in quickly in person twice, once on his way to Macedonia and once on his way back. Because I'm sure of this, verse 5. Um, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, no, that's not right. Yeah. Beg your pardon, thank you. Uh, verse 15, I think I meant. No? Yes. 1.15. 1.15, thank you. This is really tricky. How do you guys do this? 
And because I was confident in this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, because he's changed his plans, uh, the accusation might be that he's being kind of fickle, and I'll get to that in a second. Was I being fickle when I intended to do this? Um, but let's just focus on why he changes his plans so quickly. Right? It's not because he had a diary malfunction. Right? He's aware that, that you know, normally you keep your appointments. Why does he change his plan? Well, because I think he knows how hard it is to give and receive criticism well. That these things are difficult and need to be dealt with in person. So he makes his first brief journey to visit the Corinthians, and it goes not so well. I remember, he's planned two journeys, one there, one the way back. The first one doesn't go well. And I think that's because, well, no one really likes receiving criticism. I think it's understandable in some ways. I remember a friend of mine, um, I told them they didn't take criticism well, and they didn't talk to me for two months. <laughs> really showed me. Um, it's hard to take criticism. And so Paul raises the issues with them. They take it badly, so badly, then Paul cancels that second return journey. Now, why? Is, is he lost his nerve? No, I think Paul cancels it because, because he understands that his presence there is not going to be helpful at this point. His concern is for, for them. In, in general, Paul is not one to avoid a hard chat. People keep throwing him out of places because of the stuff he says. Uh, he's not a wimp when it comes to this. But even Paul decides that sometimes it's best not to go in hard. And I think that's a good warning for those of us who enjoy the conflict. He's not always at virtue. Verse 23, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again. It was to spare you. Knowing when you should and shouldn't go hard is a great pastoral instinct. He's not scared of a fight. He could get out the big stick. He's right to rebuke them. But he doesn't just go in wanting to get things off his chest or stand up for his rights. Ultimately, he wants them to grow. He wants them to repent and be changed. So he decides that turning up in person is not really going to help. Um, it's just going to be too painful for them. For them. And so instead, he writes um, them a letter. It's not this a letter that we're reading now. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's another letter, uh, which uh, we might call the many tears letter, uh, which we don't have. Whatever reason, Holy Spirit, God's providence decided that we don't need it. Um, I suspect it was so uh, specific to their circumstances and their relationship that uh, really it's just between Paul and them. But in God's grace, it seems that he used that letter actually to change the heart of the Corinthians. What a miracle. Conflict in life, in ministry, in church, in relationships, I don't need to tell you that it can be painful, it can be hard work. Um, now, some of us go through life trying to avoid the pain of dealing with issues head on, and I understand that. It's much <clears throat> nicer to try to be nice as Christians. I think we do have this idea that as Christians we should just be nice and get along all the time. That's actually unbiblical. Because we know that when you put a bunch of people together who are different, there will be tension, there will be friction. I, I don't think we should see that as a failure of the gospel. You and I have nothing in common except Jesus. 
I love Jesus, and you love Jesus, which means if you look at the person next to you in the pews here, they're probably going to be quite weird. That's the gospel, right? Right, that's the gospel. I mean, you don't have to be like me to become a Christian. So when we get together with people from different cultures and different personalities, different life experiences, all our baggage from the past, there's going to be friction. Uh, whether you're getting a new housemate or starting a business or getting married, any new enterprise with different people is going to lead to friction. There's going to be tension. There's going to be different opinions. Because we're not a mind-controlled cult, there will be different opinions about what colour the carpet should be or how we should do Holy Communion. Our instinct, I think, is to avoid these kind of conflicts, to pretend they're not there. And, and that can seem like a Christian virtue. And sometimes forbearance is. I mean, Paul doesn't go in hard the second time. But often I think it's just that we're wimps. And you don't get applause for doing hard things, like dealing with a conflict, like raising an issue. But to sweep things under the carpet is not the Christian way. And so I want to commend to you a book in the library called The Peacemaker by Ken Sand. Anyone read this book? Okay, so there are books in the library that are perhaps even more useful to your ministry than the commentaries on Obadiah, if that's possible. Practical ministry. Do you know we have them in the library? Practical ministry books for life as Christian. One of them is called The Peacemaker, and his great motto is that every conflict can be an opportunity to glorify God. For those of you who want it's RS53 Sand Peak, <laughs> or it's available as an e-book. If you need more help than that, Ruth can <laughs> guide you uh, to the place. Because it's actually in the rough and tumble of life as a Christian that our rough edges are smoothed off, that our reliance on God for our identity is uh, strengthened. When no one in the church loves you, or seem like they love you because um, you're very unpopular because you've done something hard, your reliance on being known by God first and foremost really is tested. But also our appreciation for perspectives of others is broadened. Now, none of this is easy, but it is good. None of it's easy, but it is good. And so when you see conflict coming and you feel that dread inside you, which you will unless you're a sociopath, when you feel that dread... Don't feel like it's a failure. Instead, stop and ask, God, how can I glorify you in this situation? Um, and one tip <coughs> which we can uh, you know, ask, can we do better than the, the kind of the, the Twitter mob? I think, yes, we can do better than publicly shaming people. For instance, you can, in a lot of situations, it's appropriate and safe to talk to the person involved first. Now, it goes against all our instincts, and I should say there are some circumstances when it's not safe or not possible. I understand that. But equally, anonymous letters or public shaming rarely got the result that is good. Uh, recently, we got a letter under our door complaining about our dog barking all day. It was a bit hurtful uh, because we have quite a close neighbourhood. We all know each other. Our kids go to school. We look after each other's kids. And so it was quite confronting to have an anonymous letter um, particularly because we don't have a dog. That was... An <laughs> so it was confusing and confronting. And so actually we worked out who it was, process of elimination, and we went and talked to them. Now they were not... They, they didn't see any problem with it. Well, you know, they were sure we had a dog, and we were sure we didn't, and that was the end of the conversation. Um, they weren't interested in negotiating on that. 
But anonymous letters, I mean, you get a lot of anonymous letters in ministry. I don't know if you've had them start coming yet. They're wild sometimes. Is that the way? No, you need to talk to people where possible. I saw a minor miracle on Twitter this morning, just to redeem Twitter a little bit. Two academics who had been in a very public stoush yesterday picked up the phone and talked to each other and both had lovely things to say to, about each other today. What a, what a miracle. <laughs> I mean, it'd be just amazing what happens when you actually talk to someone about the thing that the other's done. I think part of the problem also is that um, we don't know how to apologise. At least I find it really tricky. Um, part of it is actually the word sorry has become completely useless. Because sorry can mean all sorts of things. Most sentences beginning with sorry are not an apology. I'm sorry, but this is not okay means you are completely in the wrong and I'm asserting my right to rebuke you. Not an apology. I'm sorry you feel that way. You are very, very sensitive. <laughs> I'm sorry if I offended you. You have no right to feel that way. I'm sorry I yelled, but this is really serious. This is really serious. Normally you can delete the bit after I'm sorry and before the but. Uh, most counsellors I know suggest using some form of like over-engineered scaffold to make an apology work. And it seems a bit silly to have to use these kind of things, but I think, I think you do. Um, there's one like the seven A's, you know the seven A's? No, again, well there are books in the library that can um, help that. Uh, firstly, you address everyone involved. You avoid if, but, or maybe language, don't make excuses. You admit specific attitudes and actions that you can take responsibility for. You apologize expressing sorrow for how you affected the other person. You accept the consequences for your actions. You alter your behavior and then you ask them for forgiveness. And I would even use the words, please forgive. In uh, Paul's situation, it's particularly important uh, that this painful work of reconciliation take place because it actually involves very significant sin in the community. And if they tolerate that sin, uh, well, you very quickly become what you tolerate. This is um, one of my, uh, my dad's mottos growing up. You are what you tolerate. I actually wrote a book about it recently because, um, uh, and I'm a very proud son, so I'll plug it. Um, again, it's in the library. Um, <laughs> His thing is, very quickly in a community, what you tolerate, the sin you tolerate, becomes the norm. People notice, actually. He tells a story, um, and he uh, ran an organisation with 4,500 staff, so they had conflict from time to time. And uh, he tells the story of one up very high-performing senior management in that organisation who belittled one of the subordinate staff in, in a meeting in front of everyone. They were feeling threatened, so very harsh in their criticism. Anyway, this executive, the senior executive, was a star player and didn't take it very well uh, when they were told that that behaviour, afterwards, they were told that behaviour was unacceptable and that they should apologise. In fact, they chose to resign rather than do that, which is telling. Dad reflects that from an operational point of view, that departure was a loss, it was a disaster. He was a star player. However, if he had stayed, there would not have been repentance or restoration, and the outcome would have been far worse. 
it would have been tantamount to saying his behaviour was accepted and acceptable. We are what we tolerate. And so the reason why we need to get good at dealing with these conflicts is not just so um, we can uh, have easier relationships. It's actually for the community's sake as well. You are what you tolerate. As a college, really, we know what we are on about. We're on about Jesus. We know what God's standards are. And so we know what we're not okay with, what we can't be okay with. We can't be okay with sexist jokes. We can't be okay with racist or homophobic jokes. Uh, also, I don't want you to be okay with me treating my marriage vows lightly. Like you're not loving me by being okay with that. Also, you can't be okay with me or anyone else using our positions of trust and authority for our good and not the good of those we serve. That's not okay. Now, a lot of people say at this point, thou shalt not judge, and that's the end of the conversation. Checkmate. Right? Theology by checkmate. Uh, do not judge. Jesus said that, so don't judge me. Here's my question. Is Paul being judgmental by raising these issues with the Corinthians? Is he judging them by calling on them to deal with the sin in their community? Do you know how you can tell? You know the difference between Paul and the pillaring of people online for their sins? His goal is not to write the person off. He doesn't want to see them cancelled. He wants to see them restored and reconciled. The very next breath, see what he says. Chapter 2, verse 6, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Never heard that on Twitter. His goal is always restoration, not judgment. And all the more amazing here because it's, probably, it's very probable that the sin that he's talking about was actually something to do with Paul. He was actually the one mainly concerned, the one mainly affected by it. And yet his instinct is to say, yeah, but don't go too hard on him. Or he might give up the faith. He might be discouraged. He may not be able to be restored. I just think we've been sold a lie that the only two choices are tolerate evil or be nasty, judgmental people. There is a better way, and that is to love our brothers and sisters enough to have these difficult conversations and to forgive. Anyone that you forgive, says Paul, I also forgive. And so I think we actually have to be better uh, at offering forgiveness. Just as we have to be very structured in apologising, I think it's important how we respond. Don't say, oh, it's all right. If it was all right, they wouldn't have to apologise, would they? Now, to forgive someone is an implicit promise. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to think about it every day. I'm not going to bring it up and use it as ammunition against you. I'm not going to try to make people think less of you. And where possible, and I stress, where safe, I will not let this instance stand in the way of restoring our relationship. That's not always possible. Reconciliation is not always possible. But where possible, I'm not going to let this thing stand between us. The final caveat, though, I, I should say that restoration 
of someone in the community doesn't always mean a restoration of their ministry position. The Bible never tells you to trust anyone but God. And so I think, ironically, for people who are very bad at forgiving, we're also way too quick to put people back in positions of ministry and leadership because they're really gifted. That's a bad idea. So 2 Corinthians, I think, is a very precious letter. It's hard going, but it's a precious letter because it records for us a moment which was simultaneously painful and beautiful. Uh, Painful because it was a conflict that was very ugly and hard and messy, but also beautiful because through the conflict, I think Paul did, by his choices, glorify God. And in the end, they came around and they realised that they were wrong. Paul forgave them and the church was stronger for it. It won't always end like this, but we can ask, what drove, what drove Paul to try to reach this? Well, it's because of the gospel. Paul had been forgiven for far more. And even while he was an enemy of Christ, Christ reached out to him. And so that's what empowers him in the messy friction of life to offer the same grace to others. Shall we pray that God would empower us in the same way? Almighty God, uh, it's our experience of grace, your kindness to us, that empowers us in the mess of life to forgive others. Please help us uh, to look for opportunities to glorify you in our conflict. Where possible and safe, may that lead to restoration of our relationships. I pray this for our good, for the good of our community, but ultimately for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen.